Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Daniel Yellen. This week, we're opening up the Stern Chats vault to share an episode that last year's team wasn't able to release, but we thought that you might enjoy. Today's conversation is with Kirat Anand. Kirat is a successful entrepreneur, a judge of the NYU Entrepreneurs Challenge, and an advisory board member for the NYU Stern Fashion and Luxury MBA. This episode was hosted by Andrea Cease and Nika Langinger of the class of 2020. Andrea and Nika talk with Kirat about what it was like transitioning from investment banking to fashion, the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, and how it can pay off to chase down a potential client at the airport. We're going to jump right into this conversation, so let's go. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. We're joined in the studio today by Kirat. Uh, Kirat, thank you so much for joining us. We we had a great chat before we started recording, so we're really excited to uh, introduce you to the broader Stern community and all of our listeners. Uh, we thought we could start with just you um, introducing yourself and giving a little bit of um, an explainer into your connection with Stern. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for having me and reaching out. I went to Stern undergrad. Uh, when, when I was here, there were kind of dinosaurs roaming in Central uh, or Washington <laughs> Square Park. It was such a long time ago, I think Central Park came down here now. But uh, I was, I was here about, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, I graduated in 2000, so much, almost like two decades ago. Yeah, wow. So it was, it's been, been a while. But, uh, you know, we obviously didn't have uh, stern chats back then, I guess. Um, it's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> But I think you guys are doing a great thing. I, I listened to a few of your episodes prior to coming on. Um, yeah, Stern was was very, uh, I would, I'd want to say, inspirational. It was very, um, uh, you know, it really set me off on my path, I think. My, uh, you know, coming into Stern, I wish I had that work ethic at Stern that I had post-Stern, you know. So, like, if I could talk to myself or, a, or a, you know, an 18-year-old version of myself, would have been to focus a little harder, not the night before. You know, <laughs> I was really good at focusing the night before. I think I need to tell that to my like twenty-eight-year-old self, yeah. <laughs> looking back. Yeah, but um, look, NYU for me was amazing. It was uh, obviously like most undergrads, was the first time I was out of my house full time. Um, I mean, I was usually an outsider. I kind of was a a walk-on for the baseball team, which was, wasn't just NYU, it was uh, Stern, it was all of NYU. I didn't even know NYU had a baseball team. This is like my, like city school, I didn't yeah, even realize yeah, that. Yeah, we play, we play in Randall's Island, we uh-huh. they fly us down to Florida for a few games, it's fun, and then I realized really quickly that I wasn't gonna be, um, you know, the Yankees weren't gonna be calling anytime soon, so <laughs> I kind of wanted to take advantage of the other things that Stern or NYU offered, and that was um, geography, right? Location, location, location. Mm-hmm. And um, one way you could take advantage of it is by staying at the bars till 4 a.m., which I think we all do at a certain point. But then the other way is, um, you know, take advantage of, of, of being a full-time student and working part-time. And I kind of, like, had that ingrained, that work ethic in me from just as an early age, being maybe son of immigrants, first generation here. Um, so right away I was working at law firms. I was working at Forbes magazine. I was working at Morgan Stanley in 1585 doing equity research. So right off the bat, I... Every year I was working, I want to say, 25 hours a week wow. while being a full-time student, wow. taking like 
a full boatload of courses, double majored in finance, yeah. IS. And the, way, and the way I understand it is the undergraduate po- program is, is uh, grades matter, <laughs> unlike in our, our program yeah, sometimes. So, so, you know, like, we're, we're, really, uh, we're really proud of one thing at Stern, I think. I think and, and later on in my career, as, as, as we continue on this chat, we'll talk about how I became an entrepreneur. And, and people I hired from Stern were always the best. Well, always the best. Awesome. Right. Thank you for sharing that. So you said that you majored in finance and then you did, it sounds like, a lot of different types of internships. So what made you land on investment banking ultimately? Yeah, great question. So I started off uh, at a law firm. Uh, I wouldn't say I was a paralegal. I was a photocopier probably, but, you know, they kind of paid me as a paralegal, so it kind of worked out great. But, um, uh, you know, and I did that because people said, oh, you're great at debating, you're great at analyzing, and, and uh, you should be a lawyer, you should be a lawyer. You should. That's what I heard my entire life. So I said, okay, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I need to know what this law thing's like. Found out real quick that, you know, also because my parents backtracked, you know, being immigrants from India, uh, my dad's a textile engineer, my mom's a fashion designer, but they came to this country in the 60s with $8, and they didn't know anyone. They didn't have Facebook that they could friend people. They didn't have WhatsApp that they could call people back home. So it was like world was cut off to them. They came here, and it was it would be like me landing on Mars with eight dollars. So it was kind of. And like where that. did you guys? Where did they land in the U.S.? Well, they landed uh, in in Queens. Yeah, oh, awesome. yeah, yeah. So I mean, so I kind of grew up in at Forest Hills. Mm. Uh, it used to be a fun thing to say, but not anymore. I kind of went to the same elementary and middle school as Donald Trump, but now I'm not oh, too sure. Yes. So, so that's another chat. So, <laughs> so now, so you know, they they told me early on. They said you could be anything you want, just make sure you're a lawyer, doctor, or investment banker. So they gave me three options. So I said, thanks. Anything but have to be these three. So they didn't so, say for how long you had to be them. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, well, that's what I told them, right? Yeah. So. Um, and the joke was on them. But, uh, but so I tried the law thing. It, it wasn't for me. And then, um, and then Forbes kind of just worked out. And to be honest, my roommate at the time, Dean's List, he was the biggest go-getter. I mean, he was always at Bobst. Is the library still called Bobst? Yeah. I've okay. never known how to pronounce it. Okay. I think well, I said Bobst. Bobst. <laughs> Bobst. Okay. Bobst okay. as well. Well, well. But we never go there. That's so. the, that's the, that's the evolution from Bobst to Bobst. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I mean, and uh, great kid, amazing kid. K- kid was from California, and he was always studying, always studying. And he would just, he was furious. He'd be like, you study the last day, and we get the same grades. What's going on? But he had a job at Forbes, and then, and then I was telling him how I'm not really happy where I am. And uh, he's like, hey, we have an opening. Why don't you come in and, and, and intern as well? And, uh, you know, why don't you interview? So I interviewed. I got the position. Super fortunate, worked on some amazing lists. Uh, at the time, Forbes was just launching its first sports list where they were mm-hmm. checking out the valuation of all the, all the MLB, ML, um, MLB, NBA, NFL, NHL leagues. And uh, it was my responsibility to call up all the owners and CFOs and, and interview them to sort of get a deep dive of, of, their, of their financials. Um, and uh, you know, it was, it was amazing, worked on uh, in the statistics department and then started to actually realize that I'm doing more of financial and financial statement analysis versus actual journalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing more data crunching, being that I was in the stats department, and I really enjoyed that. And then that led me to an internship at Morgan Stanley on the equity research side. So I was in 1585 and doing a little bit more of that as well. And that was, again, a great experience into a bigger bank and how a, a monster machine operates. Oh, wow. So uh, you went into investment banking after graduation as well, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> that, you know, 
Stern was a little different when I was in when I was in school here, and now because of uh, philanthropic efforts or because I'm on the board here at the at the NBA, which we'll talk about later. Um, I've had the opportunity to come back and, and speak in the classroom, mm-hmm. which has been a, a great privilege and an honor. And it's amazing because the first question I usually ask the students uh, are, you know, in the next five years, do you want to launch a company or be a co-founder or be an entrepreneur? And over 80% of the class usually raises their hands, which is amazing. Because when we were in school, if you asked that question, I think maybe 20% or less would have raised their hands, mm-hmm. right? In a five-year horizon, what are you going to do? And I think we were really trained and programmed. There was a hierarchy. It was investment banking, consulting, and then you kind of went down that list when we were graduating. The way I thought about it is I didn't think there was any wrong path, but I thought that you know you could be a consultant and go work at a McKinsey, which would have been great, um, and, that, and you would be an architect. You'd be a really specialized architect. You'd mm-hmm. be a master of your universe. But then I thought in investment banking, you would be that architect, but then you would be that builder as well because you would transact and execute. And that extra level of deeper understanding of actually executing and delivering is what really attracted me to banking versus uh, consulting. Right. So that was a sort of easy, uh, easy decision for me. At that point, it was just who do I connect with, and the guys at J.P. Morgan Chase connected more than the guys at Goldman. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was going for my first interview at Goldman, I'm a Sikh, I wear a turban, I have some bracelets. One, well, one of them is a rosemary, and, and, and someone said to me, hide your bracelets, they're not going to want to see them. And I said, okay, how do I hide my turban? Mm-hmm. I could hide my bracelet, but how am I going to hide my turban? So it just didn't resonate with me, the culture at the time there, and I thought Goldman Sachs was, was not, my, not my speed, and, and J.P. Morgan Chase was a better fit. So I ended up choosing them, which was, which was an unbelievable experience. It helped me sort of uh, fine-tune my skills, give me confidence, clarity of presentation, uh, and just overall the way you, know, you would walk into a, a meeting and have the ability to, to explain a company to their founder better than they understood their company. And you did that because obviously you're working 100 plus hours a week on a two week sprint. But what I realized really quickly was we were architects and builders, but we weren't living. So I don't know how structurally safe that house was that we created. So the next element I thought, well, what could be better than that was maybe be an entrepreneur. Because as an entrepreneur, you have to be the architect, you have to be the builder, and then you have to live in the house. And then you have to sort of create a family, grow that family in that house. So unless the foundation is strong, unless you really believe is what you preach and what you sell, you're not going to put that foundation up. Whereas in banking, I knew we were selling things that we didn't really love. We just wanted a fee at the end. So you spent two years at J.P. Morgan and then took a kind of hard pivot using all the skills that you you grew while there to kind of do your own venture. Yeah, and that was really interesting too um, because sort of backtrack, I think my parents were like super proud anytime that, you know, if you could, if you ask them what I did, they'd tell you they'd have no idea. But they knew two words: investment banking. You know, like, and and for, uh, you know, for for them coming from coming from India, coming from you know, coming the way they did, and, and the hardships that they went through. I was recently asked to write a chapter in a book about what am I grateful for, and and who. So, uh, it was it was it was very simple for me. It was it was my mother. I mean, I couldn't imagine being 21 years old in a new country, not knowing anyone, and being a 
parent and taking care of a kid and then trying to be, they weren't called entrepreneurs, they were called small business owners. So then trying to run a company, be a parent, raise a child. I mean, I was just like, you know, I'm married today and my wife and I, uh, we're so busy running 100 miles an hour in the opposite directions, both entrepreneurs kind of like. So it was, it was super important for me to have them buy in. Uh, and unfortunately, early on, they weren't bought in. They were mm-hmm. like, why are you leaving banking? And I couldn't explain it to them. I was like, you don't understand. I think investment bankers should write the case study on Marketing 101 because everyone on the inside's dying to break out and everyone on the outside's dying <laughs> to break in. Mm. And I can't think of another profession because most professions, the cream rises to the top. If you're the best in the industry, you stay there the longest. In investment banking, I think they recruit the best, mm-hmm. but then the best usually end up leaving and doing something else. Well, you don't see that in any other industry, in any other profession, in any other art, music, sport. If you're the best, you're there the longest. So I was trying to explain that to them. They didn't, they didn't get it. And after a while, then I said, look, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then they said, okay, so what, what does that mean? And then I said, it's kind of like what you're doing, but I'm going to do it a little differently. Mm-hmm. And then... And then they were just completely against it. But after Can you a while, explain a little bit more about what your parents were doing, like the, their yeah, small business? Yeah, yeah. Their so, entrepreneurship? Yeah, mm-hmm. so I kind of joke and I say my parents, they sold to the masses and lived with the classes, but I sold to the classes and lived with the masses. So what I mean is they were more, uh, my dad was a textile engineer, my mother was a fashion designer, and they were more just problem solving. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we need a container load of, of, of jackets. We need a container load of, of these type of dresses. We need a container load of these hats. And they could get it from Pakistan or Portugal, India or Bangladesh. It didn't matter. China or, or Mexico. They were just sourcing. So as a child growing up, my vacations weren't around baseball camp and band camp. But it was like, let's go. We're going. And at a very young age, Two seeds were planted, the seed of art, where I was around all these artisans, seamstresses, pattern makers, and then the seed of science, which is I would be around my parents, and at our dinner table, they would be talking about how are we going to finance this order? Do we have enough money to hire? How are we going to build this team? Should we go and get this, or should we go get that? Where sh- how do we you know, divide and con- So, I mean, a lot of things that today entrepreneurs have now positioned, I guess, better acronyms for everything needs a sexy acronym, right? Right. (laughs) Right. Like like GTM strategy, like go to market (laughs) strategy, or or everything needs, so I think these were the things that an early age was like super influential or prominent in my life, and that really planted the art and science sort of seeds, and I think Steve Jobs is the one who coined those phrases of art and science, and I didn't realize it until much later in my life that that's something that I was passionate about. And people always turn to me and they're like, oh my God, it's amazing, you're a fashion designer and the Obamas wore you at the inauguration and Chrissy Teigen's always wearing you. And and for me, I never thought of myself as a fashion designer, I thought of myself as an entrepreneur delivering happiness. Mm -hmm. And that was just the channel and the form in which my delivery was being, or my message was being spread. And it's not like I wore my dresses. I was a women's contemporary fashion designer. I didn't know anything about women's fashion. I was a heterosexual Indian male coming from investment banking, but I saw a white space. I grew up in this industry. I wanted to take couture fashion with hand detailing and intricacies at a contemporary price point and offer it out. And we did this, and we started this company 
before Instagram existed, when Facebook was was just in its early stages in the universities, the guys out in Seattle were only selling books. So we couldn't, today if you launch a company, you can use all these companies that we talked about for marketing, for logistics, right? You launch a company, market on an Instagram, it's simple. Just need a few dollars, get it from friends, families, and fools. You can use Amazon. You don't have to pay for logistics and distribution. You just pay per piece, per, per item, and you build it into your cost per unit, right? There weren't those options. We needed to think strategically on how are we going to create our moat? What's our strategy going to be like? What's the supply chain? What's our business partnerships? And how do we inspire a team and grow? So it's really like the who, the how. Those were the things we really had to really think about. Just taking a step back, you mentioned seeing this white space in the market. And you serve as a mentor for Stern Venture Fellows and for the Berkeley Innovation Labs, the big challenge that gets put on to spark um, entrepreneurship. How do you advise students to like really fit, find this white space, find the areas that they can really win in? Um, and how did you do it? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I like to learn from others. Uh, Carol Dweck is a professor out in Stanford, and she has she was she talks about this case study where she's got learn it alls and know it alls, two groups of students, and she says the learn it alls always outperform the know it alls because there's a desire and a hunger to learn. And for me, it was always about learning from others. Zuckerberg used to say this early on, like, fail fast, right? Launch a product and fail fast. You'll find out really quick if it's going to be viable or not. That's always the best strategy <laughs> when you have American democracy. Yeah, but today, I mean, today he doesn't, obviously they're too big, so they don't, they, they've, they've pivoted. They, they've sort of tweaked that, right? You can't fail fast because w what if the, the site goes down for 30 minutes, like it did at, was it Black Friday or whatever, right? But... Um, but if you ask Steve Jobs, I mean, he, he said it too. He said, if you asked uh, Henry Ford what the customer needs, they would have told you we need faster horses, right? So, uh, so, so the point is, look, at the end of the day, you could sit there and uh, have analysis paralysis. You could keep thinking and researching and researching. But I would say, look, just get it out there. You got to get your product out there, and the market will tell you how to tweak it because you'll never have it perfect. So my advice: there's no one silver bullet that I could just sit here and give you because I didn't have a silver bullet. You have to celebrate your your, your small victories, and I think that's something I got better at because mm -hmm. I was always uh, I was always hyper focused on on the next fight. Fight like even if I won a fight, it was like okay, I got to fight next week. I got to fight next. I, I got another fight. So I think that comes also with a little bit of maturity. But um, it depends on who the entrepreneur is, because especially you mentioned um, the Berkeley Challenge. So in that, I do a little bit of mentoring, but more judging. So that's, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's a fun competition. And it's an, an amazing initiative that it's NYU-wide. Uh, a lot of Stern students are in it, but it's NYU-wide. And uh, a lot of great companies have come out of it. I mean, one company just went public this year. Pinterest came out of it. So I don't know. A lot of people are aware of Pinterest. Um, you know, Stern Ventures is another one, yeah, where I, where I do a little bit of mentoring as well. And I think uh, I don't have one sort of playbook that I could just hand off. It all depends on what industry you're in, who you are. Again, who, the who and how. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. who, who are you working for? Who, who and, and, and how are you solving their problem, right? So who is your customer? And, and, and how are you delivering your product or service? So speaking of, I know you said that you're, you grew up and your parents were kind of in this fashion industry and you moved into 
basically a cousin industry. And so what would you say are some of the biggest obstacles there when you were currently in the industry and now? Fashion is a very unsticky industry, so you need to be constantly innovative. You need to have your customer in mind. You need to know her or him better than um, better than maybe they know themselves. It also depends on you need to know your channel. Are you going direct to customers? Are you going B to B to C, right? Or is your customer the Nordstrom, Neiman's, and Saxes of the world like we were? Or are you going and you're going to start your own channel, And in, in which case then you really need to have your logistics here. You need to be ready to get the returns. You need to be ready to understand uh, their fickleness and their, their their change of mood and mind. And and so, it, look, there's it's it's an unsticky industry. It's an industry where there's a lot of competition. And and what I usually the first thing I tell people when they ask when they tell me they're going to launch a brand, I tell them not to do it, right? Because I the way I usually believe is I'm not the smartest person in the room, uh, and. Uh, if somebody's not doing this, there must be a good reason why somebody's not doing this. Have you figured it out? Uh, and are you, and if you're the person to do it, what's the competitive mode that you have that no one else has? How can you reduce that friction, right? So, I mean, you're talking about fashion moves very quickly, and I can think of a number of other industries that move fast as well. So if you're a small business owner or an entrepreneur who's just getting started, how do you, with such limited resources, make sure you're creating a product today for a consumer next year or yeah. next week? That's a great question. I think it's authenticity and I just have, have a point of view. I think today customers, even though I said they're very fickle, I think they're very loyal, right? So they're the same, like they can vote, they vote yes and no, but if they can see a level of authenticity and they agree with your point of view, mm. they're extremely loyal. Today the customer's more loyal than ever, right? Mm. So, um, and you've seen a lot of brands have success off that, whether if they're touting how eco-friendly they are or whether they're touting their, or actually increasing their transparency to their supply chain. It's just gives people, uh, I think very famously, Allbirds was recently knocked off, I'd like to say inspired, right? There was an inspiration <laughs> that, that appeared on Amazon mm -hmm. uh, and it, the inspiration was of Allbirds and then uh, the leadership team at, at Allbirds, they came out and they said, thank you. Uh, you know, flattery is always the greatest form of compliment. But why don't you also uh, ins be inspired by our sourcing and, 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 and uh, supply chain and, and make sure that the sneakers that you're presenting are also eco-friendly and environment-friendly, right? So, um, look, at the end of the day, I think the consumer is very focused on not how I'm buying it and what I'm paying for it, those are important, right? But also, what does this brand stand for? And does that align with who I stand for today? Interesting point. So as an entrepreneur where you're trying to build this, this loyal base, what advice do you have for a current student that's looking to start a business or maybe even you know doing investment banking in my later launch? <laughs> the advice I would give an entrepreneur is don't always be so set in your way. Right, we talked about uh, Pinterest a little bit early on. Pinterest used to be called Tote. It's for, a lot of people might might know that, might not know that. And they were originally a platform where the consumer went and and pinned things, liked things, and eventually, uh, when those items went on sale, they would get a message, and then they would actually then uh, take them to checkout and purchase the item. What Pinterest realized really quickly was they were actually creating partnerships with retailers like Gap. Banana Republic and Old Navy. They're all owned by the same company, Gap. But things were being liked or pinned, but they weren't going to the checkout box and they weren't being purchased. 
people might say Pinterest is a little bit early for e-commerce. Some people weren't comfortable putting their credit card and their information. But at the end of the day, Pinterest realized, wait, we've got something here with the pinning and the liking. They dropped the commerce part. Um, another, another company that went public was Slack, right? Slack originally started off as a gaming platform. And then they realized really quickly, they raised a ton of money and they realized quickly, wait, our gaming is not working too well, but this inter-office messaging that we have is really good. Mm. So let's work on that. So it's funny because when you start your journey in one thing, it might not be the final thing. So be open to other ideas, be quick and nimble. That's why I mentioned, you know, fail fast. I mean, I don't, you should try never to fail, but if you're going to fail, use that failing for a learning and then move on. You could even imagine how entrepreneurs could start out as one thing and kind of develop over time into something else. You yourself kind of started as maybe with more of a the designer role, and you grew a company of over 200 employees. And um, growing into that manager role from a more like maybe visionary or like upstart role might have been an interesting transition for you. I wonder if you could speak to that. You know, as you grow... You kind of like grow from a family to a village, you know, uh, and I, I like to say we kind of like our village had 200 plus people in that we had everything, logistics, supply, supply chain, marketing, partnerships, et cetera. It, 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 you get sort of further removed from everything, but what happens is you hire great people and those people sort of uh, run your initiatives. So you end up working more on people managing and people inspiring and people leading versus actually following through uh, and touching every product or touching every customer. Um, you know, I like to, again, learn, uh, you know, I like to learn from people that I know or people that I read, read about. And uh, Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, has got a, uh, a book called Leading, uh, Leading With Your Heart in which he talks about how he would inspire a team. And there's that famous shot of, uh, I don't know if you guys follow NCAA basketball, but... Grant Hill throws the ball, final second, Christian Lehner catches it, turns around, shoots. Um, in, okay, well. <laughs> we're, not, <laughs> we're the wrong audience. Yeah, right. I, I'm getting a bunch of no's here. But <laughs> anyway, but it was, it, it's, a, it's a famous, it's an iconic sports moment in the huddle right before that shot. You know, there's a way to question, there's a way to lead, there's a way to ask. And he says, uh, you know, if I told Grant Hill, you're going to be uh, under a lot of pressure, you have to throw the ball. It has to be completely precise. It's going to be three-quarters of the court. You have to let Christian Leitner. He's going to be triple-covered. He's going to catch it and shoot it. Chris, can you turn around and shoot in one second and make it? The three guys on you, uh, you won't have any time. The outcome could have been different. Instead, he said, Grant, do you think you can throw the ball and, and, and get the ball into Chris's hands? Chris, do you think you can catch it and turn around and shoot? before the clock expires. And both guys turned and said, yeah, coach, we could do it, right? If you empower, if you give your team the ability to lead, um, the outcome can be much different versus if you create pressure and, and you create a difficult moment for them. And I think that was the message that he was sending. And obviously, that's why that, that we talk about that moment today versus it being a failure. Um, the same way I would love to lead and inspire my team, but also set up guardrails. I mean, we had offices in India, China, America. Uh, I couldn't be everywhere at all times. So there are guardrails there. So if people are slipping and falling, you can always be there to help them. But you need them to sort of create their own path and lead. Well, let's transition a little bit <coughs> over to um, your transition. Um, huh? Transition for a transition. You have recently have kind of stepped away from perhaps 
uh, your own venture and then kind of moving into new new territories. So can you just speak a bit about that transition? Also, the, the board advisory role that you play on the um, fashion and luxury retail MBA at Stern. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's an unbelievable program. And, uh, you know, I think if, if you don't know about it, please, please tell your friends and, 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 and check it out. There's a one-year MBA program. It's the second year. Uh, it's been running, and it's uh, you get the credited Stern MBA, but it's a hyper-focus in retail, fashion, and luxury. Uh, you work throughout the summer, and what we do in order to help with that, because obviously the summer is the big summer for MBAs for you guys to get jobs, uh, what we do is we sort of uh, pair you with uh, either, you know, uh, great, great companies here in the retail, fashion, luxury space in New York for you to work throughout the year. Um, and it's a, it's an honor to be on the council there. Uh, I've sort of stopped taking board positions mm -hmm. from startups and uh, tech companies unless I know who's on the board and I can learn from them. Uh, for me, that's really important. And I find myself learning a lot with, with a group of people in that board. Um, that uh, that group is set up by by Jeff Carr, who's a who's a professor here in the marketing mm -hmm. department. So uh, he's done a great job. He's put a, an amazing group of people together. Uh, and a credit to Jeff. He's also a former entrepreneur and a uh, I think a tenured professor here in the um, in the marketing team. Um, yeah, and um, so what we what we do is we sort of look at the program at whole. How can we help it? How can we help the students? During and post graduation, um, obviously post is with employment. During is with either internships or mentorships and advisory work. Um, yeah. So in addition to that, I'm also an advisor with Virgin Virgin Labs. So Richard Branson, they've got a, a very big investment here in the states, and helping them sort of figure out their go-to-market strategy, their customer acquisition, uh, and just how to keep that community and culture, which is super important and, and top priority for Virgin, consistent with the messaging here while attracting the, the, the type of customers that they want. Um, so right now, I guess my transition has found me in an interesting place where I'm doing some advisory work. Um, but outside of that, I'm also weighing my options for what's next. I don't like to jump around. I like to say I've only had two two real careers, but I'm still in the first first few innings of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to really take my best practices, my learnings, and apply them. And they could be at a 100-year-old company like a Walmart or a 100-day-old company that was started in somebody's garage. So for me, it's really about aligning myself with the messaging, with, with the product, with the team, and figuring out how can I help them deal with their ambiguity, how can I help them strategize for success, and how can I take my learnings uh, and apply them here? So one thing is, I know we kind of talked about your business, but is there any way you could actually explain to it a little bit more? Because I understand it was luxury and fashion, but I feel like that can span from shoes to purses to fragrances now. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Actually, mm. that's a great question. Mm. So, um, yeah, so because we, I ran the company for almost a decade and a half, there was a lot of learnings. And again, we weren't VC funded. I was self-funded. We had a lot of op opportunity at the time once we got, you know, the wind behind our sails and we were cruising, at that point we got a lot of calls from family offices, VC firms, PE firms. We said thank you, but no thank you, um, which made our exit at the end so much easier or my exit at the end so much easier. But uh, there were a lot of pivots on to what we were and who we were. When I started off, you know, how was I going to inspire a team I sort of or inspire even on the, my customer to buy from me? Uh, given my background, given not having that academic 
or, or, or fashion training uh, and not coming from the retail world. So I needed to figure out the industry. I needed to figure out our fits and fabrications. And I did all that by starting out first in the private label business. And that also helped me sort of set up my supply chain, set up my logistics, and also test the market on someone else's. At that point, we were selling the Macy's of the world. Uh, it was funny. I mean, I'll tell you stories where I was never somebody's priority, right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, I was a, 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 a new, annoying vendor, right? I, I, I always believe that persistence beats resistance. So I would constantly be chopping the wood, right? Constantly be calling you, emailing you regardless, and eventually you would cave. And I still remember to this day, I had, uh, at the time, Macy's had five divisions all over the country. And one of the divisions called me up. She said she'll see me. She made an appointment. Lo and behold, I was the first appointment, but at the end of the day, she still hasn't come. But I have my faith that she's going to come. I get a phone. I get a phone call. Um, hey, I'm so sorry. I can't make it. I have to fly back, and my day just got backed up. And obviously, I wasn't the priority, right? I was the new vendor. I was the pers persistent vendor. Um, so she she said to me, "I'll catch you next time." Next time was 60 days later. New collection. It was a completely different sort of buying season. I said, "Hold up. Where are you flying out of? What gate? What airline? I'll meet you there." She thought I was crazy. I went down to JFK, I bought a ticket, I met her at the gate, and, and mind you, my presentations weren't, let me show you our PowerPoint deck and I'll show you what our customer acquisition channel is, and <laughs> my presentation was a show and tell with bags, mm -hmm. with actual garments, with a full collection, and did that presentation lead to a purchase order? No, but it led to a partnership, which was so much better and bigger. And, you know, she at that point was a, like our lighthouse client. We were in Macy's, right? At that point, it kind of gave us some validation. Mm -hmm. um, and and, um, and it was huge for us. And, and, and ever since then, I mean, she, she always made it a point. We would joke about it, and she became a good friend, and she would say, you're always going to be my first appointment, otherwise you're going to chase me down to the airport. <laughs> you know? I love you know, that. You know, um, one of our biggest clients at one point was Anthropology, but I could never get them in. I could, they, they would walk right by me at the fashion shows. I'd be like, hey, hey, girls, and I could just throw dresses on them, but it still wouldn't affect them. Mm -hmm. And they would always write, write to me, let's take a rain check, let's take a rain check, let's take a rain check. So there are these, there's an area in India called Rajasthan, right? And there are these umbrellas, and they're highly decorated. They've got mirrors, they've got hand embroideries, they've got tassels on them. They're beautiful, they're, they're pieces of art. And, and that, coincides extremely well with my brand, which was mm -hmm. very intricate and hand-oriented and hand-detailed, which also coincided extremely well with the anthropology customer. And it was very serendipitous. They kept emailing me, hey, we're, we're going to take a rain check. We're going to take a rain check. I said, okay. Next time I went to design my collection, I came back with a suitcase full of umbrellas. For that rain check. For that rain check. <laughs> and I sent it to every single one of their buyers and DMMs and VPs and bosses, so everyone in anthropology had this massive decorative umbrella at their desk waiting for them, and with a note saying, for the next rain check. Oh, my God. Oh, sorry. I jumped the gun on you. Yeah. The punchline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But lo and behold, um, they came in. They loved the collection. They loved the rain check umbrellas, and it was, it, was, it was a great partnership. So, look, for me, it was never about, you know, sitting in a ditch 
And if you sit in a ditch long enough, you start decorating it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, if, if you're in darkness, just light a candle and figure your way out of that ditch, climb yourself out. And for me, that was the sort of the thought process, kind of like, how, how do we find the silver lining in every cloud, right? And like, I was an outsider. I was always an outsider, right? So, but how was I going to fight my way to, to be a leader, be an inspirer? Uh, so you mentioned having your clothes uh, shown on the Obamas and uh, the, the Chrissy Teigen, Chrissy Teigen, yeah. Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. Uh, can mm -hmm. you talk a bit about that experience? Was that something you knew beforehand, or was it a surprise when you saw them uh, wearing it? Yeah. So like for us, we had a lot of those uh, celebrity wins, and 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 those are those are amazing, and and especially if we had focused more on our direct to consumer channel. Uh, and our marketing efforts, we spent zero dollars in marketing. We never spent a penny. Oh, wow. Uh, which was amazing for us. But we directed and we worked with over 100 plus bloggers and real, real fashion influencers. Um, and we directed a lot of that channel and a lot of those sales to our partners, whether it be, like I mentioned, Anthropology, but it could be a small mom and pop store in, 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 uh, in New Orleans. Uh, Baton Rouge, and there was a big Baton Rouge blogger, and we would tell her, we want you to tag our brand, mm -hmm. but make sure you say shop at and go to the boutique and buy it. And for me, it was always about who my customer is and keeping my customer at, at my forefront. I mean, everything revolved around the customer. Uh, uh, I think uh, Jeff Bezos is the most famous for, for that, right? I mean, uh, customer obsession is what he's coined. This is number one of his 14 principles. But it was very true. Um, and I actually, it's funny, I go through some of his principles and I was like, wow, we do all this or we did all this. We just didn't have it on a bulletin board in our showroom, you know. Um, but more important than some of those big wins with celebrities were the random DMs we would get. Like, I just wore your duster embroidered caftan that I bought from Free People to my father's funeral because he was an artist and... I know he would have been so happy that I wore this duster to his funeral. And I have to sit back and think about that for a moment. Like, someone just lost their father, and the first thing they thought to do was to message a random brand about how inspiring that was. And I was like, wow, that's so deep. That's so meaningful. That's more meaningful than anyone wearing me on any red carpet or any Instagram video or any story. right? So I think those victories were really, really will stay with me forever. Um, another thing that will stay with me is probably we, we, we started this thing called KAS Cares in India and it was an opportunity for us to give back to the community um, most of the labor class in India most of the artisans are male and they, most of them have single income families um, what I mean by that is many, many men leave their women in the villages and they travel to the cities uh, and if they are from the cities, then their, their, their wives are not encouraged to forget educate. A lot of them are uneducated labor. But they're not, they're not encouraged to develop a skill to earn. And what happens then is there's a lot of domestic abuse. It leads to women not having confidence and et cetera. So we set up a program called KS Cares where we would tell the husbands that would work for us, bring your wives, bring your sisters, bring your female uh, uh, friends, families, or relatives, we will teach them a trade. Mm -hmm. And it could be something as minor as stitching on a button. But we will teach her a trade. It could be pattern making. It could be draping. And not only after that, but then we will employ her. Mm -hmm. So now she's skilled. She has 
an income which gives her a voice, which gives her an identity. And we had about 50 plus, I think 52, 53 women go through that program. And that, I mean. Transformational, yeah. Transformational. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for me, it's like, it, even though we're not still running the company and we're not still involved, and, and uh, I think it's going to be inspirational for those women, and it was inspirational for them and, and for their families. I mean, change, change their lives. And perhaps a model that other companies could replicate. Hopefully, mm-hmm. yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, I know we've begun this conversation around kind of your parents giving you three options, engineer, doctor, lawyer. <laughs> You're neither of those right now, but I'm wondering, are your parents on board? Are they like, do they finally see the vision that you see? Obviously, mm. you've had great success, so I'm sure that helps it. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, my mom was always the mom. Uh, I, anyone who went to uh, a public high school in, in New York State knows about Regents tests. So I remember... Again, I had that same work ethic that I had at Stern. I had in high school. I'd studied the night before, but somehow I was really blessed, and I ended up getting a, a 99 or 98 or something on my math regions final. And my teacher's coming running down the hall. She's, like, ecstatic. She's waving the test in her. <laughs> wow. And she's like, you were the highest in the state. And I said, okay, cool. So I took that home, and I took that to Mom, and I said, Mom, guess what I got? And I told her it was a 98, I think, highest in the state. She turned around and said, where'd you lose the two points? <laughs> so, yeah, so my, my mom is a tough one to, uh, I mean, you know, I could have been Barack Obama, and I don't know if my mom would have been. Yeah, so she's a tough <laughs> one to please. So, yeah, so she's, um, I think, I think yeah, my, my dad is, is, a, is a lot more cool and chill. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, so TBD, they're still waiting for yeah, to Yeah, I mean, yeah, out. so she's still, she's still, like, I say I'm in the first inning. My mom's like, you haven't even gotten up to bat yet. So there's so wow. much more you have to do. So yeah. well, there's still time to be a doctor and engineer. Yeah, yeah, I think I think, I think that's what she's hoping. <laughs> that, my grandma's hoping for the doctor, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh my yeah. Awesome. Well, we had such a great time talking with you. Uh, this was a pleasure. And wow, we're glad you were able to share your journey, a non-traditional journey, but really fruitful and successful non- nonetheless with the broader Stern community. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Thank so- you so much. Thank you.